podcast you're about to hear is true. The names have not been changed to protect the innocent, the guilty, or anyone else. If you're interested in the same type of discussion related to organized crime that you hear in the traditional media, stop listening now. If you're interested in thinking differently or learning something, turn up the volume on your computer, smartphone, or mobile device. This is The Racket Report. Here's Frank Morano. Welcome to the Racket Report, the podcast that tries to take you behind the scenes of what goes on in the worlds of organized crime. I'm Frank Morano, and on this podcast, we have spoken to prosecutors, prosecutors who've prosecuted mob cases. We've spoken to defense attorneys, prominent defense attorneys. We've spoken to people that have known mafia killers firsthand, known them intimately, uh, gotten to know them on a personal level. We've spoken with the authors of major mafia books. Well, this is the first instance where the guest that we have fits all of those descriptions. I am very, very pleased to be joined by a gentleman who I always knew was a master prosecutor and a skilled attorney. But until I started reading his books a few years ago, I don't know that I fully had a comprehension of what a gifted storyteller he is. Michael Vecchione was the uh, former chief of the Rackets Division in the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office, and he is the co-author of the new book, Homicide is My Business, Luigi the Zip, A Hitman's Quest for Honor. Mike, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for joining me. Franks, thank you very much for having me, and thank you for those for those kind words. I'm very, very pleased to be back with you. Uh, the pleasure is all mine, and uh, congratulations on the new book. I can tell the amount of work that you put into this, and we're going to get into this um, throughout the next 45 minutes or so. But I've covered a lot of trials over the years, and one of the things that uh, both on direct examination and occasionally on cross-examination that the, pro- that the attorney always has to do is lay a foundation so that the jury understands what's going on, so the judge can follow what's going on and so that the answers that come afterwards make sense. As we look at Luigi Roncesvalli, who I have to confess, until I read your book, I was totally ignorant of. Uh, As we look at Luigi Roncesvalli, so much of his life and career as a criminal can be traced back to Sicily and mafia life in Sicily. So before we get into Luigi and what he did, lay a foundation for us. What was was mafia life in Sicily like in the middle part of the 20th century? Well, for the most part, it was controlled by the mob in Palermo. They were the ones who ran um, virtually all of the uh, the underworld in, uh, in, in Sicily at that time. And unfortunately for Luigi, he was not uh, born or raised in, uh, in Palermo. He was born and raised in, a, in, a, in the town of Catania which is on the east coast of, um, of Sicily, and, and Palermo was on the north coast. So they were sort of the, um, like the, the B team, so to speak. People who were mafia figures in Catania did not, they didn't answer to the, to the people in, in Palermo, but they were respectful of them and recognized that the, uh, the major uh, players in Sicily at the time were those in, um, in Palermo. And, and that kind of held back Luigi. Luigi, from the time that he was a little boy, uh, wanted to become a, a made man, a, a member of the mafia and someone who he called a man of honor. 
And he, when he, when in his later life, and later in his life, when he testified in front of um, in front of the President Reagan's Commission on Organized Crime, he was asked about that by a senator, and he said that in he, this is, was his quote essentially. Uh, that American boys grow up wanting to be baseball players. Mm. And in Sicily, um, Italian boys or Sicilian boys want to grow up to be mafia. And that basically summed up Luigi's um, Luigi's uh, life and the way that he lived his life and what he wanted to to become. But- the 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 mafia members uh, or made men in Sicily were the kind of the people that uh, that everyone looked up to. In in a lot of respects, Frank, they were the the law, they were the banks, um, they were the people who supplied the food. Uh, I mean, they were uh, they were they're as as crucial to everyday life in in Sicily as um, you know as our law enforcement, our grocers, our bankers are here in the United States, and um, and they and they did it all. <laughs> they did it. In, in terms of, of, of how they how they gain this respect, the, it's, it goes back to really to ancient times uh, in Sicily because the Italian government looked down upon the Sicilian government and and uh, and the Sicilians and, and somebody had to fill that void and the mafia filled that void and continued to fill the void. Um, into the time period that we're talking about. Mm, and uh, in your in your introduction to the book, you describe, and I'm a Woody Allen fan, so I certainly appreciate the reference, you just tr- describe Luigi Roncesvalli as sort of a mafia zealot who's yeah. everywhere involved in all these major mafia events in the latter part of the 20th century on two different continents, but his name never ends up in the news. Um, g- tell me a little bit about his upbringing. You talk about how... He described always aspiring to be a made member of La Cosa Nostra. What uh, what do we know about his family life and his youth and when he first got involved in the mafia? Okay. well, we don't we don't really know a lot about the early days, the days that he you know, when he grew up, other than um, him telling me that he that this was what he aspired to be someone that he um, uh, someone who. Others like him would look up to because he looked up to the uh, the made men or the the men of honor, as he called them, uh, both in Catania and and elsewhere in Sicily, but mostly in Catania. Um, He he did not talk a great deal. So I I would say that when he spoke to me, he led me to believe and and I kind of agreed with it after I thought about this a great deal that that his his life, his his living the way he wanted to live began when he had the guts to confront and to approach the main man in Catania, who was someone he called Signore Rapisardi. He never gave me his first name. Um, he didn't call him Don Rapisardi. He called him Signore Rapisardi, which kind of struck me as strange because I know these guys like to talk in, the, in terms of Don this and Don that, but he, he didn't say that. But his point to, to me was, that he could not be what he wanted to be unless he took the steps to ultimately go to Rapisardi and say to him, I want to be what you are, and I need you to help me do that. And, uh, and what he was looking for was a, a foot in the door, so to speak. He, he would do anything to, um, you know, to get into Rapisardi's confidence so that Rapisardi would trust him with with 
slowly, that is, with some things, then some bigger things. And then finally, what he ultimately became was a hitman. Um, he tells me about the, the story of the day, the first day that he went to, to confront Rapisati. And, and Rapisati owned a coffee shop um, uh, in, in Catania. And, uh, and, and Luigi knew that that's where he hung out. And he knew that that's the place where he was going to get to see him if Rapisati would see him. So he walks into the into the the, the uh, coffee shop, and he starts to walk towards Rapisardi, who he describes to me, you know, not in terms of way the way he looked, but the way he was dressed. He was always Luigi was always uh, 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 impressed by the dress, and particularly the shoes, and um, you know these guys that these guys wore, and that was important to him, you know, that he wanted to be to be to look like them as well as be like them. And he starts to approach Rapisardi, and, and immediately one of Rapisardi's thugs steps in, in the way. And he goes, essentially, what are you doing here? And uh, Luigi tells him, tells him, I want to speak to the signore. And, and he basically says, you know, get out of here, you know, get lost. He didn't stop, though, Frank. He continued to go back until one day Rapisardi, he caught Rapisardi's attention and was able to have a conversation with him. About how old is he at this point? Um, well, let's see. He he got to us in he got to me or well, got to the United States in 66. So I would say that he was about 20, maybe 18 or 20 years old when he when he does uh, when he does this in Sicily, because he spends several years in Sicily working for Apisardi. And when he comes to, you know, to the United States, he's probably in his mid to either mid to uh, late 20s or early 30s. Um because when he came to me in 79, that was 13 years later, he was probably around 40-ish or so. So, um, you know, to tell you the truth, like the age never really kind of struck me as important uh, in terms of... of right. Like, I'm just curious for my own edification, oh, if no, we're talking I, about a late teenager or somebody yeah. in his early 30s, you know, the, Actually, you, you're no. in a different place in your life at both of those yeah. points. No, no, no. He was he was a young man. Um, he was married, however, because um, when he ultimately uh, gets his gets the, the first contract to do the hit, he's he's very concerned that he's got to leave his wife for a couple of days um, because he has to go to Milan to do this hit. And uh, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Sorry, I just no. want to say that that when Rapisardi begins to use him, he begins to use him you know, kind of collect some money here. This guy owes me money for a bet. This guy owes me money because I'm a loan shark. You know, I'm collecting money. And Luigi took his job very, very seriously. He was, he, the, the idea that he was going to become a man of honor was kind of, was always in his head. And he acted that way every time he was given something to do. Um, and you know, one of the things that he was also doing at that time, because he wasn't making enough money to support himself and his budding family at that point was that he worked on the railroad in, in, in Sicily. He was, he, he, he had different jobs on the railroad, but that's, that was the legitimate job that he had. And he clearly didn't want that to be his life. He wanted to be one of those men who were able to sit in the coffee shop dress to the nines and, you know, drink coffee, read the paper and then collect the money, you know, and make money. That was his, his, his deal. So he, he, he gets into Rapisardi's confidence and he, and he does it because he does his job very well. And he, 
and he delivers for Rapisardi. And one day Rapisardi has this. Now he, he's able to feel comfortable with Luigi and he gives him his first his first job, his first real job in terms of, of being a hitman. There was a businessman um, who lived in Milan who owed Rapisardi money. And um, and and Rapisardi and he didn't pay him, of course. And that was a, a that's a bad thing. He he would lose face. He did lose face. He people would would think less of him if he would allow this to continue. And the businessman had to be hit. So he gives the he gives he tells Luigi what it is that he needs to do, where he is, uh, where he is meaning the victim is is where he's living, and he said in Milan. Now, this is another part of his personality and, and his life, Frank, that you'll, that you'll, you'll, you'll get a kick out of. He didn't know anything about uh, Milan. He didn't know anything about Italy. Wow. He knew Sicily. He knew Catania. And he told me that he had to figure out how to get from Catania to Milan. And he, and he ultimately you know, knew that he had to take a ferry from his town across the, um, I guess it's the Adriatic right there, and uh, and to around Naples. He wasn't, I, I think it was around Naples, where he would be able to get the train, um, the and uh, to tr- to Milan, and that's what he did. So he had to figure out ferry. Then when he got to Naples, he had to you know navigate his way around the the port there and get the uh, get out of there and get on to get to the train station to get up to Milan. Now, what I was saying before about his wife, and you asked me about his age, he, he, was, he was young, and young not only in, in, in years, but also in experience. And he was very worried that if he disappeared for a couple of days, that his wife was going to start thinking that he was screwing around, that he was having an affair. And um, so he lied to her. He told her that it was all business. I mean, he lied to her in the sense that he, he didn't tell her that he was going to kill somebody. He told her that he had gotten, you know, some a job and that he had to, you know, go to, to Rapisardi. I'm sorry, he had to go to Milan to take care of something for someone important. And he and he said to me uh, that he brought her that night when he had to tell her a big bouquet of flowers so that he, you know, she would be not give him a hard time in what he had to do. And um, and he and he did it. He went to Milan. And he tells me the story about how, you know, he had to figure out where this guy lived, where he worked, and do all the surveillance necessary to be able to to find a place where he could hit this guy and be able to get out of there without being arrested. Now, the important part of that, Frank, is that is the way that he did his business each and every time he did a hit whether it was in Sicily, whether it was in Italy, or was in the United States, in, in, in Brooklyn and, he, and in Jersey, wherever he did hits, this is what he did. And he learned that through uh, and from the people in Sicily, the, the mentors that he had in Sicily. And um, so he does the hit in Milan. And, um, and, he, and he does, then he tells me, you know, he has, to back, he has to now retrace all of his steps. He has to get on the train, go down to Naples, get the ferry, get the Catania. And then he has to go home and explain to his wife why he's, you know, he was, he was not around for, for, uh, for a day and a half or two days, whatever it was. Um, but then he shows up the next day when, after he gets home, goes to Rapisardi's coffee shop to get his, to get paid. And, um, and, and Rapisardi has the Italian newspapers 
And there's the story of the hit of this businessman in, in, in Milan, in the Italian newspapers that, that Rapisardi had. Well, that was a big deal for Luigi. That was, that it was sort of like, you know, his coming out, uh, so to speak, you know, it was the announcement that this guy was now, um, you know, one on his way to become one of these men of honor. And Rapisardi, of course, was very, very happy. And he gives him other, he gives him other hits. He gives him one in Rome. And, and Luigi began to get more confidence himself, confident himself. He does the one in Rome near the Trevi Fountain. And, and I'm sure uh, you've been to Rome, correct? Absolutely. You know, yeah, I was there okay. with our mutual friend, uh, Arthur Idala. Okay, so then you know that the Trevi Fountain is a place that is teeming with tourists. Sure. But that's where he does, in and around the Trevi Fountain is where he does this hit in Rome. He does another one in, in Italy somewhere, and he, and he does a couple in Sicily. Um, and then, he, and all of them, all of them, Frank, were for Rapisardi and all of them in Luigi's mind were, were hits. Uh, and the people that he hit were deserved to be killed because in his mind, they were not honorable people that they had done something that dishonored themselves, uh, and their family. And, you know, like not paying back a, a legitimate debt or not doing something that you promised to, to do, all of them that he hit were in that category, except one. But this has to do with honor as well. He heard from his colleagues on the railroad that um, one, of their, one, of, one of their fellow workers had been criticizing and making fun of Luigi and, and saying things about him that were untrue, and he heard about it. And that was, that was the kiss of death for this guy. Luigi told me it's the only time in Sicily that he ever did a hit for himself. And, and now I would think that if he is uh, carrying out all these murders in Sicily and in mainland Italy, that he would be on a mafia fast track, even in spite of whatever geographic or uh, class limitations that he might have had to deal with, that mm -hmm. he might have been on a fast track to being mm -hmm. straightened out. But that wasn't necessarily so. the case. Why was that? Why was that not, not the case? I never got, you know, he didn't know. And I never got a, I, I never got an answer to that, even during the research that I was that I read that I read did and, um, and 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 looked at other people, other authors who had written a little bit about Luigi in that time. I never got a true answer. And the only thing I came up with is that it was because of a his background um, and and what and the way that he looked. He he was not a guy that someone who was as you know as, as spiffy, if you want to use that term, that as as Luigi described Rapisardi, he was not that he was not that man, not that guy. He he blended in. He was an everyman. In fact, when he walked into my office the first time, I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that this guy was a hitman. The way he looked, He's, he was about five six. He he had this big round belly. Um, you know, the slip back hair, he just did not look like someone who, um, you know, who I thought in my, you know, <laughs> stupidity at that time would be, would be a hitman. And, mm -hmm. and that's the only thing I can think of, Frank, is that he didn't fit uh, the, the, the profile, the, uh, the profile that the Sicilians even 
um, would would feel honored to have him as being part of their brotherhood. That was the only thing that I could figure out. And later on, you can ask me the same question about the United States. After all the hits he did for, for the Bananos and then for the, and for the Gambinos in the United States, why? Well, it's because they considered him a zip. And, and a zip was something that was a, it was a derogatory term that American mafia uh, members called the Sicilians who were coming over from Sicily to be, you know, to be kind of the muscle for, for the bananas. Um, so but that's, that's what I think. I, I, he certainly was successful and, and everybody who employed him was very happy with the way that he did his work. In terms of uh, Luigi coming to America, I'm going to ask you again to lay a little bit of a foundation here sure. in terms of what mafia life was like in America okay. and in New York specifically at this time. We've seen the influence of the five families, the six families, if you include the the Cavalcantes in the New York, New Jersey area, wane and grow in different eras. At the time that Luigi Luigi came to America. What was mafia life like? And then if you can kind of dovetail that into a discussion of what exactly the pizza connection was. Okay, sure. So at the time that Luigi came over, um, let me just start by why he came here to, to, I shouldn't say here, why he, he, he came, he went to Brooklyn as opposed to Manhattan or Queens or anyplace else. Um, and, and it kind of answers your question uh, in a, a little bit of a roundabout way. When he went to Rapisardi and, and said to him, I've done all of these things for you. I want to become a man of honor. Rapisardi told him that it was not in the cards, basically, and that he should go to Brooklyn, specifically to Knickerbocker Avenue to the Bonanno family. Now, the, the reason for that is that before this is around 1966, before the in, in the early 60s, maybe the late 50s, Joe Bonanno and Carmine Galante uh, went to Sicily to set up a, um, a, a distribution, a narcotics distribution uh, network. And, um, and and they partnered with the Sicilian mafia. And, and that word filtered down throughout Sicily to even to the Catania people that that Brooklyn was the place for Sicilian men to get to because the, the American mafia needed them. And here's why they and, needed And them. what was Galante's role at the time? Galante, I believe, was either, he was, I think, either a consigliere or an underboss. Mm -hmm. I don't remember Got specifically. It. I'm sorry, but I, I just don't recall. But he was very powerful. He was very powerful. And, um, and Joe Bonanno trusted him. In fact, he was Joe Bonanno's driver at one point. Um, before he got into, uh, before he, 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 he rose in the, in, in the ranks, so to speak. Um, and why they went to Sicily was, was to set up this, this, this distribution network, which ultimately became the French connection. That's, that's where the, where this thing kind of began. And, um, and, and they knew, Bonanno and Galante knew that they would, if they, if they were, not, if they were not going to share in the big, big money that they expected to make and did make with the, this, this drug distribution, and I mean share it with the other families, that they were in for a lot of trouble. They were in for a war, basically. And they needed soldiers. They needed hitmen. They needed people who strong-armed guys. And they set up this deal with the Sicilians. You're our partners. Send us people 
to act as our foot soldiers in the event that a war breaks out between among the five families because they, they dislike us for not sharing in um, either not sharing at all or not sharing to, uh, to, the, to the degree that, that everyone would be happy. So that was, the, that was what was on the table at the time when Rapisardi told Luigi, you go, there's a place for you there. There's a reason why they'll, and they will, they will, they will take care of you and you will get made very quickly in Brooklyn because they need you. And at now, this point, do you have any idea about how many murders Luigi had under his belt at the time that he came to America? Well, you know, he had he he had I, I always used the, the the number 13, 14. He never, quite frankly, as much as I spoke to him and as many times as I spoke to him, he was not ever able to give me a specific number other than he figured it was around 13, 14. And that included several that he did in the United States. So my guess is that he did maybe about eight mm-hmm. or nine in, in Sicily and in, in, in Italy, because he did around five or six that I know about, that he was willing to talk to me about. And Frank, I got to tell you very honestly, I, I still to this day believe that he held out on me mm-hmm. um, in terms of telling me everything. And and I and I know that now for a fact because I know what he held out on in terms of the drug stuff that he told me right that that we found about, found out about later on. Um, so so he ex- he comes to Brooklyn expecting to walk into a situation where they with open arms are are going to accept this you know Sicilian guy and he was going to become you know a man of honor. Uh, very quickly, if he only, if he, as long as he, he set, as long as he met with the people who, who he was told to meet with. Rapisardi tells him to go to Knickerbocker Avenue and he tells him to use his name. He said, when you go there and you speak to the people who are in charge, you tell them that I sent you. So Luigi is not given a name. He's not told, you know, who, who's in charge on Knickerbocker Avenue. And, and at the time, it was a guy named Peter Lakata. He was the guy who ran Knickerbocker Avenue for the Bananos. And it sounds like, well, you know, what's the big deal about running you know, one street? Well, it's not really a street. That was their headquarters. And they, they whatever the Bananos were doing in Brooklyn came out of uh, Knickerbocker Avenue. And Lakata was the, was the man in charge. And, um, and, the, and Lakata's, ultimately, Lakata's downfall is that he did not agree with this escalation of drug dealing that that banano and um and galante uh wanted to uh, wanted to engage in and and were engaging in he thought you know the old mafia the old mafia saw that well we don't do drugs or we don't deal drugs well he believed that and he never wanted to get into the into the business ultimately led to his death ultimately led to his death he was assassinated because he didn't go along with uh, with the, with the program, so to speak. So Luigi comes comes to Brooklyn and he he goes to Knickerbocker Avenue. He gets set up first of all. He gets lands at JFK. He gets set up by a friend of his, one of the Sicilian guys that had come before. He gets an apartment um, in kind of East New York ish, around around not that far from Knickerbocker Avenue. And he's with now his wife, and I think he has by this point he has two kids. So. The um, the guy sets him up and Luigi now ultimately makes his way to Knickerbocker Avenue. And and what struck me, Frank, was that his approach to the the bosses on Knickerbocker Avenue was identical to what 
his approach was to rap in rap society. Hmm. He walks in not to a coffee shop, but into a social club that that had a bar and, and you know, and, and they hung out and, and 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 he and he walks in and he sees a guy sitting at a table dressed to the nines with the shoes again. Again, he's always talking about the shoes and and about the sh- uh, suits. And and he says and the guy was reading the Italian newspaper and he was drinking. I think it was an espresso. Um, and he says that I know that's the guy I need to speak to. And it turns out that he was right. The guy's mm. name was um, La, uh, Pino Dequana. Dequana was was Lakata's second in command. And um, and after when he first approaches Dequana, Dequana looks at him like he's you know a, a Martian. Says, "What are you doing here? Get get lost." Um, he said, "Drops Rapisardi's name." Didn't help. So he says, "You know, I learn. I leave, and uh, and I I come back." And ultimately, to make this a short uh, story, ultimately, he gets to sit down with um, with the Quana. I think he buys him either a Sambuco, he buys him a coffee. I just don't remember. And um, and they begin to talk and he tells him who he is and why he's there and, and his, his ambition and who sent him and all the, you know, the background information that the Quana needed. And the Quana uses him pretty much the same way that he, that he used, um, that he was used by, uh, Rapisardi. He used them to collect money. He used them to, uh, you know, do a little strong arm work and, um, and he's good at it. He's good at it. And he's not afraid to take on people who, um, you know, who are, are here in America and he's, he's a newbie, you know, he's somebody who just is new to the neighborhood. And, um, and he gets, he catches um, Lakata's attention, um, and Lakata says to him, "You know, I, essentially, you, you, I see that you, you know, you do a good job." And, and, and the other part of this is that Lakata, uh, Luigi was also a big gambler, and the way that he, he he really catches his attention, catches Lakata's attention, is that Lakata runs a um, an illegal casino on the second floor of the building where his his social club is and he he knows that someone's cheating him and he um he couldn't figure out who it was and how they were doing it um other than the fact that there was some counterfeit money that was being used to uh to place the bets so he says to luigi you know you want to you want to do some work he says i know you're good at gambling he says you go up there and i want you to watch luigi figured it out without any problems at all. He figured out who it was. He saw what was going on. The two guys were Gambino guys. They weren't even bananas. They're sitting at a bar, and he approaches them, and he basically says to them, you better not do this anymore. You better pay back Mr. You know, Mr. Licata all his money. And um, and that really got Licata's attention. And um, you know, and then he, he puts them in the in the position of collecting. Uh, Licata was a... Was a um, a loan shark as well. And again, they were gambling, of course, and people owed money. People borrowed money. People owed him money. And he starts Luigi on this, 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 this job of collecting debts. But he realizes that Luigi doesn't speak English very well. So he didn't. And Luigi admitted it. He says, you know, I, how I collect debts. I, I can't talk to people. So they set him up with a partner, some old guy who couldn't collect debts any longer who spoke English. And 
all Luigi did was basically strong arm and he collected a lot of money. And, um, and that, that got him into, into the, um, you know, into the favor of both the Quana and Lakata, but it also had another effect. And that was to kind of make other guys jealous that he, they saw that Luigi was starting to, to get the attention of the bosses. And, um, and they, you know, they didn't, they didn't like that one particular guy who ultimately becomes a, um, Luigi's partner is a guy named Paolo Laporta and Laporta was, was, was doing the work that Luigi was doing, which is collecting and strong arming people and, and that kind of stuff. Um, and now Luigi was told, I'm sorry. Now Laporta was told that Luigi is going to work with you because Luigi was starting to be able to speak better and he's going to, he's going to, he, he's good at what he does. You take him and you work with him. So Laporta says, okay. And uh, if you, I'm sure you remember this from the book. Mm-hmm. Laporta tells him that we're going to, we're going to uh, go to a, a, a pharmacy in another part of Brooklyn and the owner of the pharmacy owes um, Lakata money and uh, we're going to rob him and we're going to give Lakata the money and I'll pay him back. Luigi says, okay. They get into a car, he drives him to the pharmacy, gives him a gun. That is, uh, uh, Laporta gives him a gun and sends him in. And he says, I'll be right here. You go in, you rob him, you get the money, you come out and we leave. Luigi walks into the place and he wa- announces what he wants. And the pharmacist reaches under the counter and pulls out a gun and starts shooting at Luigi. It's going to kill him. And Luigi now doesn't know what the fuck to do. Excuse me, French. But uh, he does. He says that to me. I, I don't know what to do. He says, I, I run out. And he say, Mike, it's a good thing the guy was a bad shot because <laughs> I was dead. <laughs> he runs outside to get in a car and Laporta had taken off. He, he, he set him up and he took off. He never told them about the gun that the pharmacist had. And um, he was looking to, you know, to, to eliminate his, uh, you know, the competition, so to speak. Luigi was crazed. I, oh, crazed. I, I can imagine. And uh, by the way, if people think we're covering a lot of ground now, we're actually not even going to be uh, scratching the surface of all the great stories that are in this book. And I want to encourage people to check it out. Homicide is my business. Uh, Luigi the Zip, a hitman's quest for honor. We're talking with the author, Michael Vecchione. Uh, one of the people that becomes a pivotal character in your book and in Luigi's life is a fellow by the name of Michelle Sindona. Explain to folks who Sindona was and uh, what right. his intersection with Luigi was. Okay. Sindona, um, Sindona actually, his relationship with Luigi is how I got Luigi, how he came to come to the DA's office and become you know, the informant that he was for me and, and turned himself in. And, and it, it's, it's a very simple, simple, but a little complicated story. He, um, Michele Sindona was, uh, was an Italian financier who for years had been, um, been, been destroying essentially banks. He was buying banks and then essentially bankrupting them in, in Sicily. I'm sorry, in Italy. Um, he was hurting a lot of Italians who had kept their money in the banks and when the banks went under, they, they lost their money and he caught the attention that caught the attention of the, the art, the Cardinal or art Cardinal Archbishop of Venice, who became John Pope, John Paul, the first. 
he knew what Michele Sindona had done to his people in Sicily, in, uh, in, in uh, Venice because of the bank situation. And, um, and, and he was also, Michele Sindona was also instrumental in, in causing the fall of the Vatican Bank. What he was doing was he was using the Vatican Bank to launder money for the, for the mafia in, in Sicily and in Italy. And, um, and, and ultimately, the, the bank fell. But, but that's not where Luigi and he come in. What happens is because when, when um, John Paul I became uh, the pope, they knew, they meaning Sindona uh, and his people knew that uh, their, you know, their, their honeymoon, so to speak, in terms of, of being able to, you know, to take these banks and to, and to use them, particularly the Vatican Bank, was over. That he, he was not going to allow that to go on any longer. And, and, and ultimately, and I'm skipping ahead a little bit, ultimately they... Uh, they they wind up poisoning him and killing him. The Pope. I want to be very clear. Uh, the, the Pope John Paul the First. Pope John Paul the First. Yes, that Sindona was behind that um, behind that that murder. And and um, he, but but Sindona and Luigi hook up because Sindona ultimately comes to the United States, causes another bank in the United States to to collapse, which was called the Franklin National Bank. So he left his he, he left he took his trail of, of you know essentially destruction of banks from Italy to the United States, and he gets caught in the United States. He he is he's he's indicted by the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District. At the same time, he is also indicted in Italy for the call, for the fall of the various banks in Italy, <laughs> and he's now um, a figure who is going to have to stand trial both in Italy. And in the United States, and he's in the United States when the Italian uh, problem uh, uh, rears its ugly head in terms of of an indictment. And um, so the Sicilians, I'm sorry, I keep saying the Sicilians, the Italians want to extradite him back to Italy. The Americans want to uh, want to try him here in, um, in in the Southern District in federal court in Manhattan. So there's a it's not a battle, but there is a there are two now government agencies looking to nail Michele Sindona. And how does he take care of this? The only way that Sindona knows how, which is to get rid of the people who are causing the problem. So he wants to get rid of the prosecutor. And when I say get rid of, I'm talking about murdering the prosecutor in the Southern District um, because he feels that if. That guy goes away, then it will take a long time before someone gets up to snuff and he can make his way to Italy and be OK in Italy because he was going to have someone kill the prosecutor <laughs> slash judge in Italy. So and he, that's how he, he was going to take care of all of his problems. He was going to kill prosecutors on two different continents. Correct. Correct. And he hires, he, pro, he approaches Luigi Roncesvalli, who was vouched for by the Gambino family. And um, and he meets with him and he tells him what he wants, what he wants done. And he tells him he wants the guy in Manhattan to be killed. And he wants him not only to be killed, but he wants Luigi to plant drugs on him in his pocket so that he looks like a dirty prosecutor. And then he wants him to go to Italy and to kill the judge slash prosecutor in Italy. And that will take care of all of his problems. And uh, he tells Luigi, I will give you one hundred thousand dollars for both uh, for each hit, 
Now, at the time, Luigi was really hurt. He, he was always hurting for money because he was a big gambler, a big womanizer, and he was a drinker. So he was he he spent uh, and went through uh, lots of money. Um, so he tells him no. He tells him no. I'm not doing it. Um, and that basically is the end for him because he feels that now that he has turned down Michele Sedona, who is an international criminal, he's as good as dead. And um, and he and he realizes that unless Sindona changes his mind and and essentially lets him out of uh, you know whatever penalty there's going to be, he's going to be a dead man. So he goes to Sindona and he and he tries to get him. I'm sorry, I skipped ahead. He he's he, he's not making any money now. Sindona he tells Sindona no. Sindona is now really pissed off at him. By the way, Sindona goes and hires someone else to do this job. It doesn't get done though. Uh, the same two things. He, 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 didn't, he didn't go. He went to the right guy the first time. He didn't get to the right guy the second time. It just it just never got done. Um, but Luigi now knows that he's he's somehow he's a marked guy. That doesn't stop him from trying to make money. And he does a robbery, Frank, in Queens that he believes is going to net him about 30 grand. And it's a courier robbery, a money courier. And he, he, he shows up with his buddies, two guys who were going to split the money with him, um, and they see the courier, and the courier is a woman. And um, that, is, that was not something that Luigi was expecting, and it was not something that he would do. He said, I, I can't, I never rob a woman. We don't do that in Sicily, <laughs> and, um, but I have to. I don't have no money. So he does except he opens up the bag when he gets the money, when he gets the money bag. And it turns out there's like $3,000 in there as opposed to 30,000. So it was really a, a double whammy. By the way, he gets caught. He gets caught immediately. Somebody must've seen it. They, tr- the cops trailed the car. He gets caught. He goes into jail and, he, and in Queens, they set $500 bail on him. He can't afford $500. He calls Sindona, believe it or not, and says, help me out. I want to get out of the country. As soon as you get me out of here, I'm gone. I just want to be very clear because we, we got a lot of names going around here. So Sindona was the very same person who asked him to carry out this hit on the prosecutor. He turned Sindona down. Then right. when he's arrested in the aftermath of the courier robbery, he goes right. back to Sindona, the very same right. guy that he turned down for that murder for hire plot and yes. asks him to lend him $500. Yes. And the reason is that Luigi feels that he's got something that Louis, that he, he feels that Sindona can't turn him down because he knows that Luigi has information about the, uh, the, the, the hit, the expected hit on the prosecutor and the one in, in Italy. So in Luigi's mind, this guy will give me the 500 so that I get out of his life. And he hints at that, you know, that, you know, you can't turn me down. But Luigi, but Sindona does. He gets out. Of, he gets his brother-in-law to put the five hundred up, and he gets out of jail. He calls Sindona again, and he says, "I'm out, but I want thirty thousand dollars now to get out of the country. I will leave you alone. You'll never see me again. If you don't, you know what may happen." And he's hinting at what he was going to do. Sindona ignores him, doesn't pay him. Luigi says. So I walk into the ninth precinct in Manhattan one day and I say, I want to talk to the FBI. And that was his punishment. And basically that was why he thought that Sindona would pay him because he knew that Sindona 
he knew that Sindona knew that he had all of this information about Sindona and that it would be it would behoove Sindona to get him out of his life and get him out of his out of the country, etc. So his decision and, to cooperate was driven partly because he felt like he had no other options, partly correct. due to sur- survival and also partly due to spite. Right. Because he felt that he was wronged by these other oh. fellows and seemed very bitter about the fact that he had never gotten straightened out either in Italy or in America. That's correct. By this point. He's been here for years, and he hasn't gotten straightened out either. He's still he's still a, a zip in the minds of all of the uh, you know the American mafia, and he goes to the FBI and gives them the, the plot against the, the U.S. attorney, gives them the plot against the um, the judge in Italy, and um, and the, <laughs> the FBI now had debriefed them totally, and he had given up his murders, and he also gave up. But there was one that the FBI zeroed in on because it was able they were able to get him out of their hair at this point rather than to keep him on you know wherever they would, would keep him and that was a murder in in a restaurant in brooklyn he killed a chef of a place called new corner restaurant in the dyka heights bensonhurst sure. section of brooklyn and and that is the case that that the fbi brought him into the uh um i, I guess it was brooklyn south homicide at that point and told them this is what he has and the cops couldn't they don't they don't have the facility to keep you know guys in in uh, you know in protective custody etc so they brought him into the DA's office and they walk in with this guy and you know in in handcuffs and um they walk him into my boss's office i was i guess i was the, the most senior prosecutor in the homicide bureau at the time and and my boss calls me in says um these guys have, have an informant. He's an Italian, Italian guy. You're Italian. He's Italian. He's yours. <laughs> and, uh, and that's how I first meet Luigi Roncesvalli. And um, I bring him into a conference room. I sit him down. And, and he looked terrible. I mean, he looked like he, he had been in the Brooklyn House of Detention for, for a while. And I said, well, are you hungry? And he goes, he, and of course he was hungry. And he, he said to me, I, I don't know if you remember from the book I wrote that he said basically what they were feeding him was merite, which is <laughs> crap, you know, uh, uh, feces in, mm-hmm. in Italian. Mm-hmm. And um, that was the food. That's how he characterized the food. So I said, what do you want? He told me I wanted a veal cutlet parmesan hero and a beer. That was it, Frank. From that point on, every time he, <laughs> I saw him, I got him a veal cutlet parmesan hero and a, and a bottle of beer. And he told me he told me everything that he knew, except what he later told to the detectives that I turned them over to at some point in my time with him. And this is where we get to the pizza connection. Okay, a couple of things I want to ask you uh, before we get into the pizza connection case. One um, one is about how you chose to tell this story. Uh, You wrote this book with uh, Jerry Schmetterer, who I got to know uh, through you uh, before he passed away. And uh, the two of you wrote this book. There's a lot of great stuff in here. You refer to yourself in the third person when you're a character in the book. You refer to Mike in the book rather than rather than tell the story as you're telling it to me now. I did this. I did that. I'm just curious as a and I think it's very effective and I think it's very dramatic. It's almost like you're reading a novel. Novel. Uh, but why did you choose to refer to the character of Michael Vecchione in the third person rather than tell it from your own perspective? 
You hit it. You hit it. It is a much more Jerry. I have to admit this. That it was, you know, Jerry persuade not persuaded, but Jerry said, Mike, it's much more dramatic if we tell it that way, as opposed to I did this and I did that, that kind of thing. And and I I agreed with him. I thought that, um, you know, it was it was almost like I could take a step back and and not not that I wouldn't be honest, but I could take a step back in, in, in telling him the story um, and telling the story to the readers um, as if I was, you know, divorced from the whole thing and had learned it from another character. I mean, that's the best that I can do. And, and, and I think I, we, we, we succeeded because if you felt that it was dramatic that way, that's what we, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. I just, I also just thought it was very creative and very unique. Um, the other thing I have to ask before we get into the pizza connection is I think a lot of people know from motion pictures that may deal with the criminal justice system or even documentaries they may have seen having to do with the NYPD or the FBI, not just on mob cases, but on uh, any sort of criminal case that there very often seems to be a turf war between federal prosecutors and federal law enforcement and local prosecutors and local law enforcement. I'm, I'm curious, why was that not the case uh, for you? Why were... Uh, uh, why were the feds so willing to let you go forward with let, using Luigi for getting the information about the homicide that you were investigating rather than try to rope that into a broader federal racketeering case and charging him with murder in aid of racketeering federally? Well, I think I, I think because they had what they what they needed and what they wanted, which was the information concerning the, um, the the potential hit on the prosecutor in the Southern District, um, and also um, what the information about the the potential hit on the judge um, in Italy. I, I think that that's all you know. And I can't speak for the FBI and why um, you know why that was enough for them, but it was. It mm-hmm. was it's just, it was as simple as that. That they had what they wanted, they had what they needed, and now basically, I got the sense that they didn't want to keep this guy around. They didn't really want to have to pay for him. They didn't want to have to, you know, babysit him. So what they did was they said, well, you know, we got an open, he's got an open case in Brooklyn. Let's give him to the cops. And and then the same mentality was with the police department. They didn't know what to do with him. So, you know, what do you do? Well, let's go to the DA's office and, um, and, and they'll take care of him. That is, you know, it's as simple as that, Frank. There was no... No, no other, you know, uh, other way of thinking in, in terms of, of, of what I discerned from the way things developed um, when they came into us. They, it was a matter of he's yours now. You know, you take care of him. You take care of him. And, and, and that's the way it developed, you know. Um, I'm sure you know better than me, having not only lived uh, many instances like this, but written about many instances like this. There so often seems to be times when law enforcement officials and uh, the criminals that they are forced to work with, either through investigating or through being a handler. Um, obviously, we could do a whole mini series on the uh, DeVecchio Scarpa situation, but it certainly could also apply to Whitey Bulger and John Connolly. 
and a myriad of other prosecutors who then find themselves working with hardened criminals for a common purpose, generally being prosecution. And they become friends with these people, for lack of a better description, even though their life experiences couldn't be more different, even though their uh, values in terms of right and wrong couldn't be more different. You mentioned bonding with Luigi uh, over the beer and uh, veal parmesan. Would you say that this this guy that always aspired to be a mobster that killed 13 people, would you say that the two of you became friends? Um, I would say friendly as opposed to friends. I, I think that he trusted me. Um, which was a big thing in his in his world. Um, he knew that I was honorable in his in his mind, and and I never gave him any you know any hint of of, of other other than that. And um, and and I you know I was I was in, I don't want to say it was the the beginning of my career because I had been in the DA's office by that point about seven years, but I had never dealt with a guy like this before. So he was almost like a um, he he taught me a lot about how to deal with people like himself. And, um, and, it, and it served me very well for the rest of my, for my career. So um, friendly, almost, I don't want to say a mentor is not the right word, but, but he, was, he was sort of a teacher in terms of how, um, how somebody like me could deal with someone like him who came, who came from completely different backgrounds, obviously, other than we had that one connection, and that was our our heritage, you know, in terms of the me being Italian and him coming from from Sicily and from Italy, I would tell him about you know my grandmother's uh, you know uh, sauce on 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 Sunday and sitting down with my family and you know and and that sort of got us to the point where we were on kind of a level playing field. You know, he he knew me, I knew him. Um, but I, I don't know why I would call him a friend. I think that a friendly was more, uh, more, more appropriate, but, um, but I did develop a bond with him. And I, and I do say in the book, um, when I talk about <laughs> the Michael character, um, I do say that, you know, I, I, I sit back sometimes and think about what I would have said to my, my grandfather and my father and my uncles about developing this, you know, this relationship with this guy who was a murderer, mm. you know, mm. uh, it, it, it um, you know, something similar to this happened when I had Greg Scarpa Jr. With, I had him for a year as an informant during the DeVecchio cases. And um, when he left, <laughs> he took pictures with me. We, we, we broke bread together. We ate, you know, lunches and, and we sat and talked. I mean, it, it's a, it's an unique um I don't want to say symbiotic, but it is somewhat symbiotic. I get stuff from him. He gets stuff sure. from me, you know, and um, um, one, one, so, thing, one thing that yeah. people may find surprising. You mentioned that Luigi couldn't even afford the five hundred dollars in bail uh, right. because he was so destitute and he only got three thousand dollars from that uh, courier robbery, which he thought was going to get him thirty thousand dollars. This is a guy that uh, was a, a hitman for hire, right? Knew all sorts of high profile mafiosi. Why was he such a brokester? If he had done all this work for high-profile gangsters like uh, the Bananos and the Gambino family and Carmine Galante and uh, folks in Italy as well, why did he have no money? Well, first, the first thing is he was a gambler, a bad gambler. Lost a lot of money gambling, a lot. 
And uh, and he did have a family to take care of. So he did have, you know, he did have uh, uh, bills and and uh, and and expenses. His kids were going to school, et cetera. But it was mostly gambling, women and um, and whiskey. I mm. mean, that was that was it. That's what he did. He was um, he was not. I have to say that one of the things that he was not proud of himself for guys killed 13 people, but he was more upset with the fact that he, he had let his, um, you know, he had let his family down because he was now in custody of the, the authorities and he could not take care of his family the way he had envisioned taking care of them when he came to the United States. Sounds strange, right? He didn't, you know, he wasn't remorseful about the murders. In fact, he told me that <laughs> except for one, <laughs> they were all, they all deserve to die. And even that one, he did it for himself. Um, uh, that was uh, die, th- that was the uh, Dante, Dante situation. Yeah, I, the ISIS Queen of America. Yeah, the guy that uh, that he loaned that loaned him money. He wanted to become. And there's another example. He was a hitman, right? And he was getting paid for the hits. Um, but he also felt that there was a lot of money to be made if he became a loan shark. How did he? Why did he think that? Well, he was collecting. Remember, for guys in Sicily and for the guys in in, in Nicobar, on Nicobar Avenue. And he saw how much money the loan sharking business generated. And that was something he wanted to get into. But he didn't have the nut. He didn't have the, the investment. So he, he used a connection to vouch for him with a guy who could lend him $5,000 without interest. It was going to be a favor. And, um, and he went and the guy did lend him the $5,000. gave him a hard time first, but he, he lent him the $5,000. And Luigi promised. I'm going to get it back to you within a week or two. I forgot what it was because he had guys who were already set to borrow the money. And when he lent these two guys in Nickabacker Avenue the money and, and, and they didn't show up to pay him a week later, he was beside himself. What happened? They took off, Frank. They stole the money from wow. him. And now he had to go back to this Gambino guy who had, who he was, who had been vouched for with this guy and told and said to him, I, I can't pay you now. And the guy, instead of saying, don't worry, you pay me when you when you can, said you got until Monday, which is a Friday. You got until Monday to do it. Luigi went absolutely out of his mind. He said, I can't believe that with all of the people vouching for me that this guy wouldn't give me until Monday to get uh, uh, only gave me until Monday to get the money back. And I was never going to be able to do it. So what he did was he went back to the guy's office that night and he shot and killed him. Um, and and. He tells the story, and I, I think I, I tell it in the book about how to cover his to cover his tracks. He went to the guy's wake, and who does he meet there? But the loan shark's brother, who had taken over the loan shark's business, and the brother came up to him and said, "You owe me five thousand dollars that we lent you." I didn't forget that, and um, and Luigi ultimately had to pay him. So that's a little insight into the world that these guys live in, and. Um, and he, you know, he, that's why he was always broke. He was gambling. He was a gambler. He, it's why he did the diamond robbery. Mm-hmm. You know, I, mm-hmm. I talk about the diamond, the big diamond district robbery and, and how he got screwed out of that money as well. You know, so um, it, you know, it, to, to get into, you had asked me about the pizza connection. The reason that he got into the drug dealing was that just, for that reason, because he had he needed to make money, and he saw how much 
money there was that he was getting, he, that he would get and was getting in order to become a courier for the, uh, the bananas. And, um, and what had happened is the French connection drug pipeline was stopped by the cops. And anybody who saw the French connection movie knows that it was, it was put to an end. Um, and it dried up. And there's a conversation that we talk about uh, that I write about in terms of him and the Knickerbocker Avenue people, a guy named Puma, who was his, uh, who was his drug partner at the time, said, listen, you know, the pipeline, the pipeline stopped. So Luigi has to now make money because he was doing very well transporting drugs from Knickerbocker Avenue that the Bananos gave him to Bensonhurst to the Gambinos. And, and he was, he was, he was, he was doing, he was doing very, very well. You could make a lot of money that way. And then it stopped. So what he had to do was find a way to make money. And, and he found out about this, this diamond uh, potential for a diamond robbery in the, the diamond district in Manhattan. And he and another guy who he trusted do the robbery. And it was set up that the people who were involved, which were Gambino people and Bonanno people were going to act as when they did the robbery, they would act as the fence. For the, for the drugs. And this is the way it went down. He goes in with this other guy and they do a robbery. Million dollar diamond district robbery at the time. And that was a lot of money. He tells me that he gets the drugs, uh, gets the diamonds and he leaves the store. And the plan was for him to, <laughs> to walk from 47th Street and 6th Avenue to 47th Street and I think 1st or 2nd Avenue and hand the bag of diamonds over to another guy who was going to take off and take off with it and bring it to the, to the place, to the guy that was going to fence it. It's incredible to me that this guy could walk halfway, you know, from one side of Manhattan to the other after this big robbery. And no one, no one had any suspicion. No one stopped him. No one did anything. And he got away with it and he handed the, the diamonds off. The plan was for him then to get on a plane and go to Chicago and, and hide out in Chicago until the heat was down and they could fence the diamonds. And while he's in Chicago, what happens is he gets a hotel room and it's, let's say on the, I, I'm just going to, I don't remember the floor, but it, let's say he had a hotel room on the seventh floor and it was a modest hotel room. And he, and one afternoon or one morning, he meets a woman in the lobby of the hotel gets into a discussion with him, tells him he's, she asks him where he's staying. He tells her, and she had a young daughter who, uh, or I'm sure I shouldn't say young daughter. She had a daughter. And I believe she was trying to set Luigi up with the daughter. And she says to Luigi, why don't you come up and stay at, in, in our suite? My daughter is there. I'm there. We have a bedroom. And Luigi, as I said to you before, was a womanizer. This guy really liked women and he liked gambling. He liked the booze and he took her up on it. Packed his stuff up, left the seventh floor, didn't tell the hotel clerk, the, the desk clerk, he was, that he was moving. And he moved upstairs to the, to, the, um, to the penthouse. That night, two guys convinced the desk clerk to let them into Luigi's old room. And they just sprayed the place with, drug, uh, with gun, gunfire. Shot up the entire room. Obviously, they had been there to kill Luigi. And it turns out that the fence was a guy named Enzo Napoli, who did not like Luigi. He was a Gambino guy. He he was the guy who set this this whole murder plot up and they missed. And Luigi went crazy again. 
when he got back to Brooklyn after a, a week or two, he was at, he, he, first of all, he had, he had to explain to the Chicago cops, you know, why his room got shot up. And he said they kept me for a day and they talked his way out of that. He got back to Brooklyn ultimately and he, and he was nuts. He went nuts. He went to Knickerbocker Avenue. He spoke to, uh, you know, the people in charge and Lakata said, don't worry, don't worry. You can't do anything. So I want to kill Enzonopoli. I know it was him. And they said, they say they they, they uh, set up a, a sit down to quell the entire you know the whole problem and to, to they hadn't even fenced the diamonds and to to split up the diamonds that had still been you know in the hands of of Napoli. So he shows up, Luigi and this guy that was with him, his buddy, his name escapes me for the moment. They go to a restaurant in in Manhattan early in the afternoon. No one's there except the guys that it was supposed to be there, Lakata, and there was. Anzonopoli, someone from the Gambinos, and and the idea was to quash this entire problem that between Luigi and and Anzonopoli, and and Luigi says, I figured I'm going to get my share of the diamonds at this point. Well, it doesn't happen that way. They tell him that all he's going to get is thirty thousand mm. dollars, that he can't touch Anzonopoli, and um and he's he goes he's nuts. He says, Are you crazy? This guy wanted to kill me. He said, No, no, no. That's the way it's got to be. He tells me that the diamonds are on the table and they're separating them. They're giving them to all different guys that the Gambino head lawyer, some guy, he didn't know his name, gets a diamond. And this guy gets a diamond. This guy gets a diamond. He says, there's one big diamond left. And I figure, well, maybe that one is for me. This is before he was told he was only going to get 30 grand. He said, until some guy walks into the restaurant and everybody kind of like looks at him and it's like, like the Pope is walking in. It turns out. It was um, uh, Paul Castellano, who mm. was the boss of the Gambino family. He sits down at the table. They give him the biggest diamond in the in the bag. He takes it. He looks at it, gets up and walks out. <laughs> no questions asked. He said, Mike, they, <laughs> they give they this guy my diamond. He said, I, I get $30,000. He never forgot it. And that was one of the one of the things. That that was in the back of his mind, one of the events that was ultimately in the back of his mind when he decided that enough is enough. I'm going to get out of this. So that doesn't help him in terms of getting uh, you know money. And now he's he, he doesn't know what to do. And he gets a call from his old friend Puma. Puma tells him, come to Knickerbocker Avenue. And he says to him, you know how there's a pipeline of oil that comes from someplace to the United States and we get oil? And Luigi says, yeah, I guess. He says, well, we got a pipeline now again. And what this was, was the, what ultimately became known as the pizza connection. Again, Galante, Nano set this up. They First, they had taken, the, taken money and set up various people all across the eastern seaboard as well as into the Midwest in pizza stores. And 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 what the plan was was for the was for drugs to be heroin to be smuggled from Sicily, from the uh, laboratories in Sicily into the United States in cartons of pizza products, mozzarella and uh, and 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 tomato sauce and uh, and and flour and and all and the drugs were being hidden among the the goods to make pizzas, and then once they got to to the pizza place that was part of their, their, um, you know, their organization, they would separate the drugs from the, the pizza stuff and give it to the, give it to, um, 
the, whoever was coming to pick it up, and ultimately that those drugs got transported across the country. Luigi becomes a courier, a courier like you cannot believe. <laughs> he gets to Knickerbocker Avenue. They tell him exactly what, what's going on now. The pipeline is open, but drugs have to get from Brooklyn to Los Angeles, from Brooklyn to Chicago, from Brooklyn to Miami, and from Miami to Brooklyn. So they tell Luigi, this is what we want you to do, and, and you're going to pay him handsomely. So he, he says, okay, he, said, he hated dealing the drugs. He knew that it was, it was not honorable in his mind to deal drugs. So they say, here's what you got to do. They give him a, a lesson. They tell him, you got to go buy a, a suit that's two or three times bigger than your size. And then we're going to stuff the pockets of the suit with packages of heroin. You then go to the airport and you wait until the very last moment to enter, you know, to, to, to get onto the plane. Just as they're closing the doors, you run on so that nobody has any questions. And of course, this is before 9-11, before any, you know, anybody had any sure. metal detectors or anything. And, and, and you sit in, the, in your seat and you never, never get up until you get to Los Angeles. He said, and the one thing he was told, never fall asleep. Never fall asleep. Now, how, do, how does this, how do we, do we know all of this? Well, this is not him to me, but at some point when he gets, well, ultimately when he's, fin when he's finished with me, I turn him over to the, to, the, to the squad in the DA's office. They were investigating Knickerbocker Avenue. They got everything that they wanted from him. He gave them information about the Carmine Galante homicide. So he was known to a detective in our office uh, whose name was Kenny McCabe. And it was, I told you, Frank, it was always in my opinion that he was not giving me everything, not giving me everything, but he gave me what I needed. And, and sure. he takes well, yeah. a plea to the New Corners restaurant murder and he goes, he goes away. He was he was able to do his time in a federal facility. I think he got four years. I don't remember exactly. Um, now, he, he, uh, what was a prison like for him, given the <laughs> fact that people knew that he was a cooperator? Well, it was um, he he was OK. You know why? Because he was kept in the federal facility he went to was in Sandstone, Minnesota. The end of the earth for him. It might have been. It might as well have been the the moon, for as far as he was concerned. He was so far away from civilization, and it was designed. The part of the the uh, the prison that he was uh, he was housed in was designed to for cooperators and people who had given information to to various law enforcement, and 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 that's the way. That's where he lived. He lived in a place with everyone who was like him. You know, guys who were. Who were um, who were rats in their in their terminology? Um, look, when he we, when he was in the Brooklyn House of Detention, I kept him in in protective custody, also with people who were cooperating, but cooperating with with uh, with local authorities like us, which is how he met a guy who wanted to kill his, who wanted him to kill his brother. But that's another story. So he's in Sandstone, Minnesota, and um, and keep in mind now he's been transporting drugs. To, to Los Angeles, to Chicago in, in bags of, of, of releases. And he would walk out of the, the Union Station in Chicago, meet a guy who pretended to be a taxi driver. They'd get in the car, he'd drive around the corner, 
he'd leave the bag and go back into the train station and get back on the train and come to New York. He, he was also traveling to Miami to pick up drugs in Miami and transport them all the way from Miami to Brooklyn in the back of a Porsche. They, they had the, the, all of these, this heroin in the back of a Porsche, and he sat in the, in the passenger seat with a shotgun between his legs to protect the merchandise um, from, from any kind of robbery. Another unbelievable thing, Frank, that he went from Miami to Brooklyn on these trips, not stopped, not one time going through the South. You would think that, you know, that, that these, <laughs> these two guys in this, in this Porsche would get stopped by some, you know, local Yoko cop down there just to break their chops, but he never got stopped. <laughs> it's amazing. Never. And, um, and, and my point is that when, he, so he was transporting all of this stuff, and, and he was now in Sandstone when he got word from his lawyer that President Reagan had established this, pre, this, this presidential commission to investigate organized crime, and that one of the sessions was going to be about drug dealing. So he had firsthand information, and he reached out to Kenny McCabe, and Kenny McCabe, and he brought, McCabe brought him into Brooklyn. They sat down with um, with the with uh, with him. He sat down with him, and and Kenny realized that this guy had information that was valuable, and he turned them over to a former detective who worked with us and who I went to actually went to grammar school with a guy named Doug Lavien, who was I know Doug's uh, son Vinny quite well. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. His he Doug was working with Reagan's commission. And um, and he turned them over to Doug, and Doug prepared them with um, I forgot the guy's name who was running the commission, um, the the lawyer, and and he testified in Miami of all places uh, in front of the president's commission, but he had the drug information when he was talking to me, but he held it back, Frank. This you know he was a calculating guy, and he, I think he had that always in his pocket as you know something which he could give up. And and when it was necessary and life in Sandstone, Minnesota, uh, was not something that was palatable to, uh, you know, to to Luigi. So shortly after that, I saw Kenny McCabe at a going away party or something, or some kind of an event. And I said to him, what's that? What's up with, with Ronson Valley? What'd you do with him? He says, I turned him over to Doug. And I knew Doug was working for the president's commission at the time. And. He testified in front of the president's commission and he testified all about transporting the drugs, how they came into the country, who set it up, everything. It was it was there was a story in the Miami Herald or one of the Miami papers, as well as a New York paper that caught the attention of Rudy Giuliani and Louis Free, who were free was a prosecutor at the time. Giuliani was the U.S. attorney in the Southern District, and they were doing the pizza connection case. And they realized that this guy was gold in terms of a prosecutor. And they brought him in, sat him down and prepped him. And he wound up becoming a star witness in the, in the pizza connection case. And, um, went off to witness protection after that. You know? and, and he and, finished uh, his life in the witness security program. Well, he did, but before he, before he finished his life there, <laughs> he hated it as well. He hated witness protection because again, he was moving from one small motel to another. Sure. I mean, he was, and he so he he cooked up this idea to contact the head defendant in the pizza <laughs> connection case was a guy named Catalano, Toto Catalano, who had taken over from Peter Licata as the main man on on Knickerbocker Avenue. And he contacted um, he contacted, excuse me, Catalano's lawyer and told him that 
he wanted to recant. And he gave him the excuse that he was sorry, you know, he was a man of honor and that he didn't know he didn't realize what he was doing. There was so much pressure and that he would recant and go into court and say that he lied when he testified against Catalano. What he wanted, Frank, he didn't. This was all he wanted Catalano to pay him money and to take care of him for the rest of his life. And when the lawyer debriefed him in a motel room in Cincinnati, Ohio, over a co- over the course of several days, he kept saying to the guy, "Well, when are we to the lawyer? When are we going to talk about?" It? And he would, you know, he would rub his fingers together, indicating the money. When are we going to talk about how you know you're going to help me? And um, and of course, the lawyer was saying, "I can't, you know, I can't promise you. I can't buy anything. I can't, you know, I can't buy your testimony. You've got to do it." Um, you know, because you say that you lied. He did it, Frank. He did it. He signed paperwork <laughs> saying that he lied. And it was filed in uh, in federal court in Manhattan. And before it was acted upon, um, Luigi recanted his recantation. He realized that going back to jail was not something that uh, that he wanted and that the witness protection was was better than than behind bars. So it, it worked out okay for him, but he went back into witness protection, and ultimately, Frank, he killed himself because he couldn't mm. he couldn't make it in mm. in witness protection. And um, um, the pizza ended a very colorful life, my friend. Oh uh, no, so. that's for sure. Uh, the pizza connection case, uh, his recanting of the testimony, uh, that didn't have an impact in the convictions. Ultimately, though, right? It did not. It did not because um, there. First of all, there were uh, there was other evidence. And and ultimately, the they were they meaning Giuliani and Free were able to convince the judge that the recantation, the initial recantation, was because he was he said uh, to them that he was afraid that he was going to be found out wherever they kept him and that he was going to be killed. So rather than uh, you know living with you know having to look over his shoulder all the time. He decided to recant, even though he actually told the truth at the trial. That's what it ultimately mm-hmm. came out. And the judge, you know, the judge bought it. So he did not set aside the verdict. You know, I have uh, gotten to know Rudy a bit because he hosts a radio show on our station and uh, we're, we're pretty friendly. And the thing that he is uh, the only subject that he's more passionate about discussing than politics is mo- the mob. He loves discussing the mob, uh, even uh, stuff that's happening now, stuff that happened when he was a prosecutor, stuff that happened uh, 40, 50, 60 years ago. How would you rank uh, Rudy Giuliani in terms of being a mob prosecutor at the top of the list, at the top of the list, the guy, the guy, you know, someone you have to, I have to rank him there because he's the guy who, um, you know, who tested the, uh, basically the whole Rico law in terms of, um, of the commission case. Um, I mean, he, that, that was a, you know, a landmark case as far as prosecution is concerned. And, um, and, and, you know, this pizza connection was, was not that far behind in terms of uh, its effect on um, on on mob life. I mean, he basically put this entire this entire concocted, um, and I say that in, in not in a derogatory sense in terms of this 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 um, you know this this connection from from Sicily to the United States and the idea of hiding all of this stuff in, in pizza cans was um, you know was ingen- was a genius move. 
and he was able to, uh, you know, to take it down and, uh, and to convict everybody on the list. In the back of the book, I, I, I had the indictment that you could see how extensive the indictment was oh, right. uh, in terms of the pizza connection. So, um, so I, I rank him at the top of the list, Frank. Um, Carmine Galanti, who uh, obviously had some interactions with Luigi and was an integral part of the leadership of the Manano crime family, the photo of his murder is uh, one of those uh, famous f- mafia photos that uh, everyone shares, and uh, it's been memorialized in motion pictures and so forth. Why was Carmine Galanti killed? <laughs> it's a, it's it's so simple. You're going to uh, you know to to say why didn't I think of that? You know what it was greed. Hmm. He did not share with the rest of the people who were working for him to the extent that they thought that they were, that they, they were owed. He had all of these guys who were banana and the banana people killed him. I mean, Baldo Amato and, and Cesar Bonventry, who were his bodyguards were basically responsible for, for his death. And, um, and the, the, the rest of the Bonanno family um, were, were essentially pissed off at him because he was not giving them enough money. He was not sharing. They were making millions of dollars a week, Frank. Millions a week. Wow. So um, they wanted more of, the, uh, more of the pie, and he didn't give it to them, and, um, and that's why he was killed. There's a lot of talk in law enforcement that, the, that when when Galante got out of jail and he had been in jail for for in different places, but when he finally got out of jail, I think he was in Atlanta prison. Um, the 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 I don't the lore is that it was dropped by FBI people and other other feds uh, into the minds and into the ears of of mafia people all over New York that he was looking to take over. As you know, Capo de Tutti Capi, you know the head, the number one guy, and um, and they they felt that you know that that would, and and it did, they put a mark, you know, a big mark, a black mark on the on his or a, a target on his back, um, and I and I had bought that you know that argument um, or that, that that theory for a while because I was teaching at St. John's, I was teaching a course in the history of organized crime, and I taught it for, for many years, and, and that was what I had always thought was was, you know, the reason. But when I started to do the research for this book, I realized that it was more basic and that was greed. There's only one thing the mafia cares about and that's money. And, um, and when they can make more money and they don't, then they look to hold someone responsible for that. And that's what they did. They held Galante responsible and they killed him. Uh, Joe Bonanno is one of the few mafia figures, certainly one of the few mafia figures that seems to have gotten to retire without going yeah. to prison or g- being killed. Uh, how come he got to do that? What was so special about Joe Bonanno? Well, I think I think part of it was that he was been around so long and had so many connections, deep connections into the into the mafia before you know when when it was being formed in those days. Um, he was working for so-and-so and he became he, 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 for, for various people. I think that they just respected him too much. And um, and I, I really believe that that's why uh, he didn't he wasn't killed. He had just been around long enough to 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 earn that kind of respect from them. And even though he you know, he was going to and he was he was shunned. I mean, he was sent to Arizona or allowed to go to Arizona to retire because he had he had been part of a plot to kill um, to kill uh, Carlo Gambino, 
and um, and take over. That's what he, you know, his his main uh, idea was to become, uh, you know, to become the the head of the New York Mafia. And Joe Colombo gave it up. I mean, Joe Colombo was 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 approached to do the hit, and he gave it up. He went to uh, to to the to the, the commission, the heads of the families, and said, "Look, this is what's going on." And that's how they um, they got rid of uh, they got rid of him. But I think it was purely a matter of him being around and and having enough people uh, saying to the, those that would be pulling the strings here, you know, let him just retire and, and go. And that's that's what happened. One of the things that uh, frequently gets debated and discussed is sort of the ethics of turning state's evidence or becoming a rat. Uh, there's always a lot of judgment, not just by uh, defense attorneys or mafiosi either, but even among regular people, about folks that spend their whole lives committing crimes, including murders, and then when it comes time to pay the piper and go to prison for a lifetime of misdeeds, they instead choose to uh, rat on all of their criminal cohorts and in some cases e- exaggerate or make up lies about their criminal cohorts. Do you think that applies to Luigi, the sort of negative connotations that so often comes with the ethics of ratting? Do you think uh, Luigi deserves a bad rap for that? Well, you know, he, um, <laughs> I, I don't, I think that in, in a different Setting in a different situation, uh, without the Michele Sindona um, uh, problem looming over him, I, I'm not sure that Luigi would have gone to the mm-hmm. extent that he went. I, I really don't. I think that it was it was, as you say, self preservation. Um, he believed that Sedona was such a powerful figure in the underworld that him being he turning him down was a was a black mark that would never be forgotten, and that ultimately someone would get to him. And um, and I, I think that that was the that was his motivation. I I, I truly believe that it was something that uh, in in another set of circumstances he he would he would not have done. I think he would have gone to uh, to his grave, quite frankly, uh, keeping all of those secrets, um, but realized that in order to save himself. And his family, and it was mostly his family, you know, but him, of course, but he, he, that, that he knew that he had to continue and do what he did. And, and, you know, that's the motivation for, for a lot of these guys. Um, uh, some of them is that, you know, I don't want to go to jail for the rest of my life. For Luigi, it was basically, um, I need to, uh, to preserve my life for as long as I can and, and my wife and my, my kids. Um, the first thing he said to me, Frank, well, one of the first things after the veal cutlet and and the beer was, um, "Are you going to take care of my family the way that uh, I was told hmm. that he, they would be taken care of?" And, and I said, "Yeah, you know, I told them that we would." And um, and, and I believe that one of the things that he thought about was, um, Sindona was such a devious and such a bad guy 
that ultimately he would have gotten him and he probably would have gotten his family too. So I love this book. Homicide is my business. It would be a great motion picture uh, these are stories that I've never heard before. And they're told so vividly uh, that, and there's never really been a film like this uh, sort of combining the American mafia, the Italian mafia, uh, a, hit, a hitman's battle with his own ethics, his own conscience. Um, if you had to pick given your own experience as an author, as an attorney, as a prosecutor, or somebody who's researched a lot of mafia cases over the years. What do you think the most realistic motion picture is depicting the mob, mob life, criminal prosecutions of the mob? If you had to pick one, what would it be? It would be Goodfellas. And and Goodfellas, A, and shortly beyond, just not that far behind it, uh, Donnie Brasco. Mm. And because... Um, both of them show the, the, uh, the, uh, and I'm going to use the term underworld, but show that these guys are basically low lives. I mean, they are, they are the, the worst of the worst. And, um, and when you, there's one scene I'll never forget in Donnie Brasco where they're talking about breaking into parking meters because they were so desperate for money. And um, and I believe that that really depicts mafia life <laughs> as opposed to something like The Godfather, you know, where it's it's glamorized or or other, some of the other things. But um, but those are the two. And uh, and I think that they both um, they both depict the real grit of um, and, and, and the dirty part of uh, of mafia life. It's not not glamorous at all. The book is terrific. Homicide is my business. I'm encouraging everybody to check it out. It's available in on Amazon.com and most bookstores. Its author is Michael Vecchione. Now, Michael, you've already been very generous with your time. I thought this was going to go 45 minutes. We ended up talking for uh, double that. But right. I have to ask you about this because, and if you don't want to answer, I wouldn't blame you because I'm uh, kind of throwing this uh, at you out of the blue. But uh, the last edition of this podcast that we did, uh, we spoke at length with Peter Peter Lance about the Greg Scarpa, Linda Vecchio case, and he um, discussed your decision to uh, not continue with the prosecution of uh, Lindley DeVecchio. Uh, if you're game, I want to play for you what he said and then just get you to react to it since you're here. Okay. Okay. Yeah. This is uh, Peter Lance addressing the prosecution of Lindley DeVecchio. But I, I think that not only did she, she only really fully contradicted one of the four cases uh, and involving uh, Joe uh, Domenico. Okay. Joe, Joe Domenico was the one case I believe that she absolutely did not, but she was equivocal in the, her language about the second case that, that uh, Becky Owen described. And two of the murders of the four murders, she didn't contradict at all. So this is what and, and what Mike uh, Vecchione did that was astonishing to me is he painted himself into a corner on the basis of just hearing these uh, very briefly hearing these recordings. He stood up there and said, Judge, we're 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 throwing the towel in effectively. Mm -hmm. He didn't say, Your Honor, we want to finish our case in chief. We want to make our full case. There are many witnesses. And, and by the way, it wasn't just uh, he called it later, called her the rock. Uh, the, the key witness, the you know, the, that they based their entire case on, that's absurd. They had many, many other pieces of evidence that pointed to Linda Vecchio's conspiracy with Scarpa, including the testimony of these FBI agents who, you know, they did a terrible job of cross-examining 
uh, and, you know, rehabilitating. But another thing that had happened, let me just say this, that Mike Vecchione couldn't present the case himself, really. He had to step back there were, because uh, several members of the office were tainted because they had looked at the um, some of the immunized testimony of Linda Vecchio and the OPR, and there was what's called a, a, a Castigar violation. So he was actually ca- counting on his third team after months and months of preparation uh, literally went to trial in this incredibly high-profile case after doing multiple cases himself over the many months before then. So he was kind of exhausted. He wasn't presenting the case himself. Assistants were. And they had a lot of other evidence, including uh, uh, two of the murders that were unbelievably powerful that Linda corroborated. And I was able to corroborate her testimony your thoughts on what Peter Lance said there. He thinks you should not have dropped the case after uh, after it came out that Linda Shiro was not being truthful about one of those murders. What do you think? Well, first of all, I did present the case. I tried the case. I had some people helping me, but I tried the case. So I have no idea why Lance says that, uh, you know, I was too exhausted to try it. And um, I, I had just come through about four, three or four other cases, corruption cases with pop judges and, and politicians, etc. He's right about that. And I did ask the judge to put the case over till after the summer from the spring to um, to a fall uh, trial. That's all true. But I tried the case. What he's talking about is early in the case, I had to give the um, the, the, the early part of it, the Castigar hearing um, to two other people in my office who were part of my team to to handle because I was going to be a witness in that. The allegation was that I had read the immunized testimony, the federal immunized testimony um, of of, uh, DeVecchio, and uh, that was not the case. I had never seen it, but I couldn't be my own. I couldn't be my own, my own Mm -hmm. attorney uh, in terms of asking questions. So that part of the case was handled by someone else. But it was. But I tried the case. That's that's the one thing. The second thing is the decision was made. I was not the district attorney. okay. (laughs) so without more being said, when it was brought to the district attorney's attention Mm. uh, as to what had what Linda had said previously about some of the allegations that were now on trial, it was the district attorney's position that she was um, unbelievable. I mean, it was his that she had been she had been, uh, you know, a hurt so badly by this that it would be um, it, it would not be fair for us to continue. That was his decision. And it had something to do with the judge as well, because the judge, Judge um, uh, uh, Reichbach, said, eh, you know, uh, it's hard for me now to, to 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 go forward with this. And it was a judge trial it wasn't a jury trial. So there was a combination of things, um, but I had to stand up at the end of the day um, when decisions were made, okay, and say that I had to dismiss the case because of the reasons why that I gave. Um, so, you know, uh, Lance um, doesn't have it totally correct, and um, it was. And, and I'm going to be candid with you. If it was my choice, I would have gone forward with. The one case that I thought was um, the one murder that I mm. thought was uh, unaffected by Linda's testimony, and that was the, the, the killing of, of their friend 
who they thought was a um, who was an informant, and I forgot his name now. It's got to it's got to drive you crazy that uh, Devecchio. Marco, I think his name was yeah. I think it, it was Pete. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and I would have gone forward with that, but you know what, Frank, I was a soldier. In right, the sure. Office. I sure. was not the general. Michael, so. it is always a treat to talk with you. I will look forward to seeing you soon. Uh, good luck with the book. I hope everyone checks out. Homicide is my business. Thank you very much for having me, Frank. And I urge your your. And by the way, I just want to say that the audio book um, of Homicide is My Business will be out on uh, November 15th. Thank you, Michael Vecchione. Okay. The book is Homicide is My Business. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend. If somebody sent this to you, please subscribe. You could search The Racket Report on any podcast app. And uh, be sure to catch me on the radio on uh, WABC every morning from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. Until the next time we meet in cyberspace, I'll see you on the radio.